Let's open with prayer. Oh, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds to your word to behold wondrous things, to behold our Lord Jesus Christ in the pages of your word and all that he has done for us to procure our release from sin, death, and hell. We ask that you would bless us now as we begin. In Jesus' name. Good. I, I was just going to speak about that. That that's kind of a, a, a housekeeping thing. Uh, I noticed some years ago when I was here, I I mentioned that some of you remember that where, especially in the divine service, there are opportunities after prayers and other things for an amen. That is the people's response. It's not the pastor's response. Uh, and I, I'm just going to tell you what Luther says in the small catechism. Amen, what does this mean? It means that I should be assured that such petitions... This is a different translation. This is the, the Tapper translation. That I should be assured that such petitions are acceptable to our Heavenly Father and are heard by Him, for He Himself has commanded us to pray like this and has promised to hear us. Amen, amen means yes, yes, it shall be so, or... To put it in the vernacular, this is true, I believe it. And that's what your response is. This is true, I believe it. So when there are those places in the divine service, you respond with that hearty amen. And the pastor gets into the pulpit and says, speaks the greeting. Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Yes, now you have it. See, you did it here. I don't know why. Are you, are you shy in the divine service that uh, I'm not supposed to speak? You know, those, those are your responses, the responses of the people. So, okay. Uh, let's just, um, I'll call for any follow-up questions from last week in case you thought of something, uh, and I didn't mean to reopen that whole discussion, but uh, if you thought of something after we left that you wanted to ask, we'll give you an opportunity to ask. It, um, it's so known throughout Missouri Synod that we are truly receiving Christ's body and blood, and, and, and that is all formal and done in a certain wonderful way, then why isn't it unanimous in what everybody does with his body and blood when we're done? Did all of you get that? She's asking, if, if the doctrine is settled, why is there such widespread practice in our synod? I guess if I could answer that question, I could be the president uh, of the synod. I suppose because maybe we haven't catechized our people well enough that it was, I think in some congregations, it, nobody even realized anything about it. And that's, uh, this is about the, if you weren't here last week, what we call the reliquii or that's the nice Latin word for the leftovers at the sacrament and what should be done with them, how it should be done. I think simply we just haven't done a good job of catechizing our people with regard to the conduct of the divine service in which we assume everybody knows what's going on. And if, if you grew up in the Missouri Synod and you were schooled in TLH, uh, the way that you showed that you belonged was that you didn't open the book. I know all this by heart. I don't need to open the book. <laughs> and uh, yet, when it comes down to certain practices, and there are certain local customs that probably get in the way of some of this. And uh, I think that's probably the answer that I would give. Well, I get that why we might not know. But when every pastor is ordained, and you're all, we're all Missouri Synod, and we're all, why don't all the pastors know? And then the pastors teach us, like you did last week. The pastors, it's, it starts there, right? Yeah. 
Oh. <laughs> Walt, <laughs> help me. <laughs> no, I, I have an answer, but. <laughs> no, 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 uh, no. Wow. I don't want to be flip about it, but I think a lot of a lot of our pastors don't think these things are important. That they are they fall into the category of adiaphoron, things that are indifferent, and they really are not indifferent. But I think. Some of them are. I, I think it's, you know, the pastors just don't want to deal with it, or they're in a situation where if I bring this up, the, 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 uh, the congregation is going to rise up and, as you heard in the gospel this morning, going to throw me over the hill. Only I'm not Jesus, and I'm not going to walk through them unscathed. They're probably going <laughs> to succeed and throw me over the cliff. Uh, and I think probably some of our pastors maybe just... Don't wake that sleeping dog, you know, because it's, someone once said it's easier to change a doctrine than a custom. You know, we're, we are fully ingrained in our customs, uh, it's, and that's, that's how it happens. Plus the fact that I think we have not perhaps done as good a job in teaching the doctrine of the sacrament of the altar in uh, in what it is, as as you heard me allude to those who are receptionists, those who say that it's only the moment of the receiving that it is the body and blood of Christ, and that clearly is a heresy. But I would guess that uh, you, you may have some pastors who didn't pay very close attention when they were in the seminary. Now, I'm not sure if that's so true today at the seminary, but at least in my day, it might have been. So uh, we, we have generations of pastors with different educational experiences in the seminary. And um, we went through a very tumultuous time in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. And some of that never went away. So anyway, the, the answer is still catechesis. And the more you know, the better it is. So, yes. You could say leftovers. <laughs> the, the leftover was consecrated before communion the next time. I don't right, and it probably was, and that, that then presents the difficulty. She's saying that which was left over then was reconsecrated. You see, this, this is the problem that was in Luther's day with this pastor Wolferinus where Luther said, you are opening this thing up to all kinds of scandal. And uh, in order not to have to deal with those questions of, well, when is it no longer the body and blood of Christ? Which none of us can answer. Luther said, consume it all and get rid of the problem. And that gets rid of the problem. It's like, your leftovers, you know, ladies, you put it in the refrigerator and you say, well, how long is that good? When, <laughs> when, right? So how do you determine? Is this not good to eat now or not? Uh, here, you take, you know, give it to the husband. Here, take a taste. Does this, does this taste funny to you? Uh, you know, you, you go ahead and get sick. And if you get sick, we'll throw it out. Uh, th this is one of those you, d you can't do that with precision either and that's probably a poor example but uh, uh, in order not to have those those questions it should be consumed and that way then you don't say well it was consecrated when did it become unconsecrated and and that's a question I don't want to answer 
I'm not qualified to answer that, and I don't think any of us is. So in order to avoid it, uh, consume it. And if you, if you aren't going to eat it, then burn it. So there, there are those ways of doing it, but I think that the, the respectful way is that it should, be, it should be eaten because, as Luther says, the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ for us Christians to eat and to drink, period. Okay. Oh, receptionism. Uh, that is the, the belief that it isn't the true body and blood of Christ until it's in your mouth. So that then opens up a whole... So after the words are spoken, it still isn't? And, and then I think... Uh, Luther says in that letter, and I didn't read all the, both of those letters that he wrote, where he gets down to, okay, at which syllable in those words <laughs> is it and isn't it? I mean, that's, that's the idiocy of that position. And uh, then you just keep slicing it up into little pieces, in which then you have really destroyed the whole action as to what is, is really happening here. Uh, you'll find that in some Lutheran bodies. I, I, one, of, one of our former vicars came out of the ELS, which most of you maybe know about that. The Preuss family has a connection to the ELS, the Evangelical Lutheran Synod. And uh, this former vicar went to the had gone to his undergrad in the ELS, and he said, he said that's basically their doctrinal position. So I, I did not know that. I had never had an opportunity to discuss that with anybody, but he said this is basically what they believe. So uh, they, they, are, they are one, and I'm not saying that's all of them, but there are some of them, I think a good number, that evidently do have that conviction. And so, therefore, it doesn't matter what you do with it before or after, only in that moment. That's the only thing that matters. And then it gets, then, then you're down to, well, is it my faith that, that causes it to be the body and blood of Christ? No, it's the word of the Lord. So, uh, I mean, you just, then you, then you become very perilously close to being reformed. And, uh, but I, I don't know others, I haven't examined it. That's a good question. It's like the one that Pastor Allman raised last week about, has anybody done a study of this Missouri <laughs> Synod? We might not want to make that study, but that would be, that would be a good, um, that would be a good paper for a seminarian to do. You know, but then it would be a sample because you wouldn't be able to get everybody, but you could get a you know, what you call a pollsters, a, a, an accurate sample, perhaps. And it would depend upon which district you were in, too. So, okay. All right, well, I didn't intend to spend more time on that unless there are any other burning questions on this issue. One more. All right, and that's when you come back to it, as Luther did in the disputes, he always came back to the words of Jesus, this is my body, this is my blood. Well, when it, when it comes to that, when he was debating with Zwingli, uh, who denied the real presence, or had a kind of spiritual presence rather than you are you are eating the true body and blood of Christ and drinking the true blood of Christ in the sacrament um, you have the word of the Lord period 
So when, when the sacrament, and we said that, that, that it begins, the action begins with the, the service of the sacrament and ends when all has been consumed and the blessing is spoken, we say now the service is over. So in order to be careful of saying, all right, when does this, when does it end? That's the position of the Lutheran Church. And I, and I realize you're asking about what men say about it, but finally we have to interpret what is there. I was going back to the catechism and think about in, with, and under. And that word under, there's a mission. And then anything we try to do to explain that mystery, you know, takes it away. No, 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 no longer a mission. So I, you know, this practice that you're talking about mm -hmm. leaves it a mission. Yeah. There, there is, there is a, uh, a question that I have used in the past when we've had We had a, uh, an exchange student from Germany in our congregation a couple of times, the one time. And this girl was a Lutheran, but she was a member of the state church. And the state church in Germany is really not very Lutheran. Parts of it are. So uh, she wished to commune, and I, and I had to speak with her about the fact that we were not in fellowship. But at the same time, provide her pastoral care. So the question I asked her, I said, what do I hold in my hand when I commune you? She said, the body of Christ. What do I have in the chalice? The blood of Christ. You have it. See, very, very simple question. And that, that, that will unmask any, any Zwinglians or Reformed people. They, they can't, they would not be able to give that answer truthfully. So it is, in some ways, it's very simple. But we've complicated it by, well, what do we do with the leftovers? Let's put it back, you know, we'll treat it respectfully and put it back in the jar and we label it. But now what? Do, do we put it back on the altar and say it's still the body of Christ? Well, if it is, then why are we reconsecrating it? Well, I suppose say, well, we want to remove any doubts. Well, why would there be doubts? Well, you see, you've just opened up Pandora's box. And once you open it up, you can't get it back in. So, okay. All right, I was going to uh, look at the doctrine of election uh, today. Maybe we'll get started on that. We, leave, we stop at uh, 10.15? Or earlier, 10? Oh, 10, we stop at 10.30? I thought service started at 10.30. 10.45, okay. All right. Well, then we, we started early this morning, didn't we? Oh, we, should, we didn't need to start until 9.45, and I started at 9.30. 9.30? Okay. 9.30 to 10.30. Okay. I'll get this eventually. All right. Let's, we're, we're going to, I thought it might be <clears throat> um, helpful and comforting for us to look at the doctrine called the election of grace. And um, how many of you know the, the name Franz Pieper? All right. Some of you do. He uh, wrote a three-volume set of dogmatics that I guess is, is still in use uh, at the seminary. <clears throat> he was also uh, the president at the seminary and also the president of the synod for a while. <coughs> Excuse me. He said that this doctrine should be put after the doctrine of the church because scripture addresses those who by faith have become members of the Christian church as the elect. So this is a way of saying that any discussion of the doctrine of election outside of word and sacrament is out of bounds. And that's the opposite of those who follow John Calvin, 
And some of you are nodding your heads, so I think you probably know that Calvin had um, the doctrine of predestination in which you were, it was a, a double predestination. You were chosen to be saved, and there are those then, if there are those who are chosen to be saved, there must be those who are chosen or elected to damnation. And so when Calvin talked about this, he talked about it under God's eternal decrees apart from the context of word and sacrament or apart from grace. So that's why Calvinists can talk about being elected to either salvation or damnation. But for Lutherans, the election of grace serves an auxiliary role to the sola gratia by grace alone. In other words, it falls in there. It falls in there where we are talking about uh, word and sacrament, where God is gracious to us and brings us the gifts. I'm going to give you a definition from Peeper. <coughs> the eternal act of God, by which from eternity, out of pure grace for Christ's sake, God has decreed to bestow those blessings on the Christians which through his call they now enjoy conversion, justification, sanctification, and preservation in faith. All right, we're going to look up some Bible passages. This is a Bible class after all. Uh, so if you would turn to Ephesians chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at verses 3 through 10, and I'm going to read these words and these are going to be probably, if you are looking at your NIV, um, they're going to be a little different. <coughs> Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Uh, those words in English are broken down into a, a, uh, at least a few sentences. In the original Greek, that's all one sentence. Which just, as you're, you're reading through it, and it's, oh, well, well, it's almost like German. <laughs> you know, where you go along, you, you don't know what the verb is until you get to the end. Say, <laughs> so, oh, okay, back up. So, in here, what items are connected to the election? <clears throat> Anybody want to answer that? All right, to be adopted as sons. All right, is there anything else? Redemption. Redemption through his blood. Redemption through his blood. And this includes then the forgiveness of trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Um, When did this election occur? Before the foundation of the world. All right. Before the foundation of the world. Before creation, God chose you. That's a pretty marvelous thing, isn't it? To say, well, it really didn't have anything to do with what you do on earth. Now the Calvinist says, well, if you have worked very hard and you have been successful in life, 
it must mean that God has chosen you because he has blessed you. So this is really where we get this term, the Protestant work ethic. You didn't know that, did you? Some have tried to lay it at the feet of Luther, but mm, doesn't fit. It's really a Calvinist thought. So who, are, who, who were these people, uh, at least in the New World, at least in this country? They were pretty much the Calvinists, uh, the Presbyterians in particular. Uh, oh, I got a, a story about that. Um, you know, John Calvin, and then his disciple in Scotland. Anybody know who he was? John Knox. Four years ago, my dear wife and I were in Scotland, in Edinburgh. <clears throat> and they were saying, well, you can visit the John Knox Museum. And you think, okay, John Knox is buried in, in one of the churches. He's under parking space number 23 <laughs> in a parking lot. Yeah, they, they admit that. They paved it over. So he's, so you, you know, you can go to Luther's grave. You know, it's in the Castle Church in Wittenberg, and many of you have been there. And you say, you know he's there. They must have folded him up because that was, it's not a very big space. But John Knox, I've got the, like I say, I have the photo. I think it's parking place 23 in the parking lot. See, there's, you know, there was this red Toyota parked over top of it. So. So not a very respectful thing for him. I, I don't know if we could say, I wonder if he realized he was predestined to be paved over in a parking lot. So the, the election occurs from eternity before the creation of the world. Okay, let's look at some other passages. Let's look at 2 Timothy 1, verses 8 through 11. <clears throat> Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. So here, what is connected to the election is uh, life and immortality, eternal life. Um, and again, when did this election occur? Paul is very consistent. Before the foundation of the world, before the world was created. So we see it's not just in one place, but uh, before the ages began is the way he has it here. So he has called us to this, to this holy calling in which... Uh, it is because of his purpose and grace, not because of our works. So, for the Calvinist, part of the assurance of salvation is, well, have I been successful in my life? Has, you know, am I prospering financially? And so a good Calvinist would say, yeah, see, there's proof that I'm among the elect. But, uh, you know, there are people who work very hard and just, it was, as we would say, just can't seem to catch a break, you know, sometimes through no fault of their own. So then we would say, well, or the Calvinists would ask, is such a person elect? They would probably say no, because the evidence isn't there that God is prospering him. So they're looking at 
at the wrong thing. They've got their focus set on the wrong thing as the proof of it. And the proof of it is only in what God says in the forgiveness of sins, not whether you have been successful in life. Uh, I was telling Pastor Ullman just a little bit ago, I started reading a book. My uh, son-in-law and daughter gave me a book for Christmas. Grant, any of you, have any of you seen the book? Ulysses S. Grant, have you read it yet? Not all of it. Not all of it. You're, you're probably ahead of me. <laughs> but his early life, everything he, everything he tried to do just... <laughs> he was a horrible businessman after he got out of the... Uh, well, even while he was still in the army in his early days, he, he tried to earn extra money because officers weren't paid very much. And he, he was taken advantage of by people. People cheated him, swindled him. He would make bad investments because he just, he was too gullible, actually. But he grew up in uh, a Methodist home and partly Presbyterian in there, too. And um, you'd have to say, well, he certainly couldn't have been one of the chosen because nothing was going right for him in life. Uh, and there are, there are many that uh, their lives don't go well because they, they are living life under the cross. Uh, we Lutherans are good at that. We make sure that we... Uh, we have that focus that uh, there are many things, there are many crosses that we have to bear in life that are uh, not evidences that God hates us, but they are the evidences of his love. Yeah, Paul's in jail. Yeah, when, he, when he's, yeah, he has his letters written from prison. And yet the, the one that, that is maybe the most amazing is the letter to the Philippians, which is the, the epistle of joy. And yet he's saying, here I am in jail, but I'm happy. <laughs> and we wonder how that can be, but it is, the focus is much different. The focus is on what God has, has uh, done for us. Okay, a couple of, a few more passages here. Let's look at Acts 13, verse 48. <clears throat> And when the Gentiles heard this, they began, well, I should read before that, for the Lord, for so the Lord has commanded us, saying, <clears throat> I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Uh, notice here, uh, what's connected to this election, and that is the word of the Lord. That is, as it is proclaimed, and those of you who are in the, uh, the early service this morning uh, will notice that uh, in, the, in the Holy Gospel, when Jesus reads from Isaiah, and they get into questioning him, and he talks about the fact that Elijah was sent to a Gentile lady, and Elisha was sent to a Gentile man, and not to the Jews, they get extremely upset. You know, how could this be? The Gentiles, God has not chosen. Except that Isaiah says it very clearly in the prophecy that they are to be the light for the nations so that eventually the whole world comes to salvation. And so that's always a danger that uh, one wants to look at certain people and say, nah, not you. <laughs> you know, it's uh, because maybe I don't like you. I say, I don't like who you are. I don't like which people group you are in. And we continue to bring that down and slice it, you know, if you don't live in my neighborhood. Uh, we could get to uh, 
Jesus parable of the, uh, or that when he's discussing loving the neighbor and the, uh, the, the religious leader asks him, and who is my neighbor? And who is the one who is put forth as the neighbor? The Samaritan. Uh, well, actually, the Samaritan, Jesus is the good Samaritan. But the fact that uh, the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other and the Jews would say, no, the Samaritans are going to be lost. They are, they're, not, uh, they are not chosen by God. We are the chosen people. When in fact, what this is telling us is that God has chosen people from every nation, tribe, and race. It is not exclusive. Okay, uh, let's go to Romans 8. Twenty-eight. <clears throat> And we're going to read 28 through 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called, and those whom He called, He also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Uh, one of my pet peeves is what happens to verse 28. And I'm sure you've, you've, you've witnessed this. People say, well, all things work together for good. What's wrong with saying that? Nobody wants to bite on that one, huh? People say all things work together for good. Well, just look at the words. <laughs> we know that for those who love God, all things. So all things do not work together for good to the person who is shaking his fist at God. But there's more. For those who are called according to his purpose. And sometimes, even, even among us, that gets shortened. All things, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Well, yeah, but you really need to say more than that. And that is, for those who are called according to his purpose. So, the promise is really made only for whom? The elect. Only the elect can say, all this works together for my good. Otherwise, you don't have the assurance that it does. And clearly, clearly, those, those who are outside of Christ cannot claim that all things are working together for their good. Any comments here? This, is, this one is a, uh, this is one that touches us because we hear this a lot. Could be, but there's always that doubt, you know, because if you, you've been, uh, let's say you've been wealthy for many years and all of a sudden you have a reverse and you lose everything, say, eh, not him. That was. Um, the Calvinists we know are not so focused on, I guess, financial riches, but like if they see, you know, what they call fruits in their life or, you know, they feel like God's enabling them to do good works, then, you know, they must be saved. Um, hmm. And, you know, either, either wealth or they're saved by the decision they feel they've made. So we say we're clinging to our baptism, we're clinging to the promises that he made. How do we answer the people who say, yes, but what about the people who have been saved and then fall away? How can you? Well, um, I'd like to go back to the baptism part. Because if God has chosen you, 
he has also brought you to baptism, in which, as Luther writes so eloquently so many times, you do not lose your baptism. Your baptism is good. Why? Because you, you, you believe. Now you've, you've added something to faith. It's what you do, or the, the neo-evangelicals who say your decision. No, baptism is good because God says so. He's the one who does all the acting. As you heard it, where was it? Was it in here? Was it in this one? And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You see, who's the actor here? Who's the one doing the action? It's God. Yeah, we're we're gonna we're gonna get there eventually. Okay, that's that's a question that's gonna come up. You've you've seen already the difficulty. Then those who turn their back on God, and then we will talk about. Well, how do you know when you've reached the point of no return? And basically, none of us can say that. You know, unless somebody has just made a big deal out of it and then dies. Uh, but we'll, we'll, we'll bring that up again. We'll come back to that. Uh, let's see. One more passage. Go to Ephesians 2.5, and then we'll stop for today. No, we go to 10.30, don't we? I don't, I don't get that. I, <laughs> I'm having trouble with this. I'm sorry. All right, we're, uh, Ephesians 2.5. And I'll start at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And we will continue. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So very simply, how are we saved? By the grace of God. Not grace plus something else. It's not even faith plus your testimony. It's by grace. And faith is merely the hand that receives the gift that God places in it. So the election of grace is exactly that. And and now you see, perhaps, or you're beginning to see why Peeper says, you can't separate this from the word and the sacrament. It's got to be in that context. It has to be. So therefore, the, our election is, is what God has done and has nothing whatsoever to do with what we do. Any of these add-ons that you mentioned uh, that, that others say. Otherwise, then it, your salvation depends at least in part upon you doing something. And that gives me no comfort. Um, Stay in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 11. And um, in this section, Paul is talking about the fact that he was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. And he talks about his unworthiness, but at 11, this was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the eternal purpose is recognized in Christ. So our election is in him and not because of anything that you or I have done. 
So it's just pure giftedness, pure grace on God's part that He chooses us. Uh, let's go to Romans 9.11. And we'll start at uh, 10. And this is talking about... uh, Rebecca and her offspring. And not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Oh, there's one of those passages. You, oh, you put your hand in front of your eyes and say, oh, that, it's, yeah, that's a difficult one. And um, the, certainly the Calvinists would go to that one. But um, I think um, what needs to be said here is uh, there's a nice footnote in the Lutheran Study Bible that I think says it pretty well. The love-hate language emphasizes preference of one over another, not literal hatred. And then there are some comparisons from the Old Testament. So it's not, it's not that. It's the preferring, like, like we do. You know, I really hate, I really hate asparagus. You say, do you really hate it? I mean, you want to send this vegetable to hell? <laughs> Maybe you do, or broccoli, or one of those. No, I really just, I don't care for it. So, okay, all right, the preference, I wouldn't choose it. You know, maybe you tell your wife that, I don't want that, or maybe you say, hey, I really like that. But but in this case here, uh, the cause of one's election is only in God, not in us. Okay, I think you're getting that pretty clearly from these passages that we've been reading. that uh, the election is only in God, not in ourselves. Um, Let's go to 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Christ, Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Wow, there's a lot there. Um, So he's talking to the elect exiles of the dispersion. And uh, he says they are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. That's another way of saying faith. And for sprinkling with his blood, that's the forgiveness of sins. We would say this is really a reference to baptism. So in whom is one's own election? It is in Jesus Christ. You are elect in Jesus Christ. Um, Let's look at uh, Romans 11. Go back to Romans 11. And then we're going to stop looking at some passages for a while. Romans 11.5. And he's talking about the remnant of Israel. And, and I should have said something earlier about uh, starting in chapter 8, when Paul is talking about the Gentiles 
and then he gets into the whole matter in chapters 9 and 10 about what about the Jews? What happened? You know, they were God's chosen people. What happened? And he, he deals with all that. He deals with Israel's unbelief. And then in chapter 10, at verse 5, you see the message of salvation is for all people and that God has given his unfailing promise. But then there's the matter of the remnant of Israel. Uh, 11, 5. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. And I'll just kind of skip ahead to the end of this discussion, and we'll be coming back to that. Uh, around... At, at 25, he begins talking about the mystery of Israel's salvation, but I want to skip to Paul's conclusion here. He doesn't really give us the answer maybe that we would like to have. He just says at 33, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given him a gift a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. Paul just comes to the end of that and says, the only thing that's left is to glorify God. You know, and trying to deal with the whole question of, well, what happened to the Jews? You know, we still, we still have that question still floats around. And uh, that, that'll, be another, that'll be another thing there. Um, okay, maybe I should just open it up for some questions at this point. I don't want to just keep talking. So, in James 2, starting at verse 14, there's a whole section about faith and deeds. And I think some of the reformed friends that we've had in the past, this is what they stand on when they talk about faith without works is dead. Oh. James is addressing this whole thing. Show me your faith without deeds. I will show you my faith by what I do. And then it goes up to talk about Abraham's faith and Rahab's faith and it was counted to them as righteousness for what they did. Mm -hmm. And so I think you don't necessarily look at the whole of Scripture like as Lutherans, you're teaching us to do and we're doing. But if you lift that out, that's what they're standing on, I believe. Mm. Yeah, she's saying that these others are standing on these words of James. Uh, that, uh, what, what, what was the verse? Well, you know, Luther didn't like the letter of James. <laughs> he, he called it a strawy epistle, or a, an epistle full of straw. And, you know, we, we have not agreed with Luther on that. There is a proper distinction here, and that is that uh, works follow faith, but they do not go before faith. They are not co-equal with faith. Uh, the confessions, if you really need something to help you fall asleep at night, you can read the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, Article 4, which is, uh, uh, what is it, 400 paragraphs, I think? It's 400 paragraphs long, and, and it 
it, uh, it keeps going over this again and again and again so that you can't not get the point that uh, uh, if, you, if you inject works into this somewhere, into the matter of justification, it is 400 paragraphs. Uh, that, um, there was, I lost my thought there. If you inject that in there, then it isn't by grace. We are saved by grace for Christ's sake through faith. But then that faith does produce something, but it is God who produces it, not us. So there's nothing that we are contributing to this. Nothing. So if you want to pull that out, you can always pull stuff out and say, yeah, see, what about that? Well, you got to look at the totality of what Scripture says and not just uh, a few passages. So the election of grace has to be understood in the context of word and sacrament, the means of grace. Because it's grace. If you take it out of there, then you then you're going to fall off. You're going to fall off onto the wrong side of the fence, and then you're going to have works that you're going to be throwing in there, and then it's no longer grace. Then it's grace plus works or faith plus works, and it's not. Otherwise, who of us would ever have any any certainty of salvation? None of us would. I mean, it's your last moment. We say, well, I just sinned. And I will tell you, uh, here's, a, here's a secret. Not really a secret. But you come to the sacrament of the altar. And you kneel at the rail. And you receive the body and blood of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And I'll bet you before 10 seconds have gone past, you've sinned. You're looking down there and saying, oh, you know, really don't like him. <laughs> you know, or you, you have other unholy thoughts before you, even, before you even get up. So now the whole thing is, well, what about my forgiveness? Am I forgiven? <laughs> you know, is this a matter of like your visa bill? You know, you never get it down to zero. <laughs> Say, well, I got it all the way down, I got it all paid. Wait a minute, we just got a new charge, so it's, it's back up again. Is the matter of the forgiveness of sins quantitative or qualitative? And if it's quantitative, you and I are in big trouble. Because there is never a time that we aren't sinful. You know the Latin phrase, simul justus et peccator, at the same time, sinner and saint. And you will be saint and sinner until the day you die. So you say, well, how do I know, how do I have any assurance of forgiveness? It's got to be the grace of God. Purely. Because if it isn't, you know, very few of us are going to have the opportunity as Luther did when he died and he's on his deathbed and they come up and they ask him, what do you believe? And he, you know, do you still believe this? Yeah. And he falls asleep. I say, wow, what a blessed death. You know, most of us are not going to get that opportunity. You know, you're, many of us will die suddenly <laughs> or maybe in an unconscious state or in an accident, whatever. I say, well, then where is the assurance of the forgiveness of sins if you haven't had a chance to get an absolution spoken to you at that last instant. And besides that, the pastor's probably going to be somewhere else and he, can't, he won't be there. When it, you know, he's not going to be there to hold your hand and, and, and speak that blessing to you. You know, very few of us are going to have that. So where is your confidence? It's got to be in the grace of God, purely. And in this election of grace, and that's what this doctrine is meant to be, is a comfort to say, well, God chose me. He brought me to holy baptism. I have been baptized into the death and the resurrection of Christ. He has nourished my, 
my faith throughout my life with word and sacrament. And therefore, I'm saved. Now, you know, you tell your Roman friends that, and they say, well, you know, maybe you didn't do enough, or you tell your other, your Calvinist friends, and they'll, they'll say, you, you still need more. They don't understand why Lutherans are such a happy lot when it comes to this. <laughs> but we are. That assurance of salvation doesn't rest in you, and it doesn't rest in me. It rests only in Christ, and He's chosen you. And that's why Luther says, you have your baptism. Always come back to your baptism. You always come back to the comfort of baptism. I am baptized, Luther said. That's what you tell yourself. But I'm baptized. And my sins are forgiven. Even the ones I commit before I get up from the communion rail. Now, you'll think about that. Those of you who are coming to the second service, you'll be... <laughs> but keep this in mind. You have just received the, the tangible assurance that indeed Christ has forgiven you. You are forgiven. Not just has forgiven you, but keeps you forgiven. Keeps you in this state of grace so that you can rejoice. Okay, we are time, at time. Finish that up. Let's close with the blessing. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. Good. <laughs> I like to hear that strong amen. <laughs>